0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning. Glad that we could be together as we look at John 6 uh, this morning, and particularly around the theme of taste this Advent. What does it mean to partake of Christ and actually taste the Lord Jesus? And so please join me in prayer, and then we'll be looking at the Scripture together. Let's pray. Father, we'd like to thank you that we can gather within these walls to listen for your voice. We trust, pray, ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We're mindful in this season, Father, that it's eminently easy to uh, rush through obligations and activities and events and not taste anything, let alone you. So would you quiet our hearts in these few moments that we have together in order that we might encounter nothing less than the living, resurrected Jesus, our hope in this world. We pray this in the name of Christ who is our hope, amen. And uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be home after some travels and to be with you. Often when I teach with the Torchbearer Missionary Fellowship in different places around the world, one of the themes of that community is that Christ has a power that will enable us to live a life we could never live on our own. And so I invite people to receive all that Christ is in order that, having been filled with nothing less than Christ, we might fulfill the calling for which we were created. We might live into that for which God designed us. And so I teach that in many places, and one of the most common responses that people say to me, well, yes, but how do you do that? Like, what does it actually mean to appropriate, if I could say say it that way, appropriate Christ and allow Christ to live life through me? What does that look like in real time? And I'd like to talk about that a little bit this this morning as we go through John uh, chapter 6. So we'll be looking at that, but my response to people when they ask that question is, uh, the good news, when you ask how do we partake of Christ, the good news is this, God has made us so that we hunger, right? And uh, if you have an appetite, you all, we all know this physically, what happens? When we're hungry, what do we do? When we're hungry, what do we do? We eat. Isn't that marvelous? And, and in, an, in an unfallen world, when we're n- not hungry anymore, what do we do? We stop eating. And therein is a perfect diet, actually. It's one page. When you're hungry, eat when you're full stop. If we just did that, we'd all be happy, right? Uh, But, as we know, our appetites in a fallen world don't always work that way. In fact, one of the things that happens is we don't always eat when we're hungry. And, of course, we all know sometimes we also eat when we're not hungry. But uh, this morning, in particular, I want to talk about is the reality that we don't always eat when we're You can be hungry and still not eat. Uh, It happens... In mountaineering, when you get up up about 12,000 feet, you get uh, altitude sickness, many of us do anyway. And when you get up above about 12,000 feet, you lose any desire to eat any food. You know you need to, but you're eating with an act of faith and will rather than an obedience and appetite, right? Sometimes the same thing happens in chemotherapy. People lose their appetites. There are certain illnesses that make people lose their appetites. So that we're hungry, but we don't eat. And in the same way, our spiritual senses are fallen. So that we're prone to a sort of a spiritual junk food uh, indulgence habit that I would argue kills our spiritual hunger. And when we're stuck in that, then we don't always partake of Christ. And so when we're asking this morning, what does it mean to partake of Christ? We see a path forward out of these perverted spiritual appetites in John chapter 6, kind of three-act play, right? So Jesus rise to popularity, act one. Act two, Jesus clarifies his intention, as a crowd is following him. And in act three, um, uh, every people depart. And so as Jesus clarifies, he, rather than gaining popularity, everyone leaves. And we'll look at all three of these because herein is an understanding. What does it mean to partake of Christ? So that's the framing question. And we begin with this act one, Jesus rise to popularity. We're gonna, we're gonna use a lot of John six this morning. And so if you have a Bible, I would really encourage you to follow along because here's what we read. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee And a large crowd (coughs) followed him because they saw signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And so um, what's happening is when we pick up the story in John chapter 6, Jesus is wildly popular, wildly popular, and he's popular because he's performing miracles, right? And uh, he withdraws from crowds, goes to the other side of the lake or the sea, but the crowds follow him. So when he gets there, the crowd is, they follow him. And here's my question. Why wouldn't they? Of course they'd follow him. Like they follow him because he's doing things that nobody's ever done before. Uh, People are sick. He's healing them. People have demons. He's casting out demons. People are blind. Suddenly they see. They can't speak. Now they can speak. So Jesus is doing amazing things. And when he does these amazing things, everywhere he goes, he's meeting needs. And when Jesus meets these very base physical needs, uh, he is warmly received. Jesus is warmly received when he meets needs. Uh, true today, I would say to this, to this day, I encounter people in travels on an airplane. People ask, what do you do? It's always a hard question when you're a pastor to know exactly what to say. But eventually, when I do say I'm a pastor, one of two or three, two or three things happens. What the, commonly, people say, oh, well, I have a novel I need to read. And then they kind of turn like this and they open their book and they don't want to talk at all. Other people... Uh, I, I hear this often. Oh, your pastor. Well, listen, I want you to know I think Jesus is awesome. I hear that all the time. Really, I, I, Jesus, I, may, I like Jesus. I, I, and then we, you know, I press a little bit. Oh, are you involved in the church community, faith community? No, 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 no. I, I don't want anything to do with religion. I just like Jesus. If we, if we all just be Jesus, all would be well. What people are really saying in that is Jesus is amazing in his capacity to meet people exactly at their point of need. Does that, does that make sense? And so if Jesus is hungry, what does Jesus do? Right in this John 6, he produces food. If you're blind, what does he do? Pfft, something you see. Can't hear, you can hear. Can't talk, you can talk. Filled with demons, you're free. Jesus does this, and uh, whenever needs are met, people are attracted to that, right? Uh, to this very day, we our shelter's full, uh, because there's people who are homeless in our city. In fact, we have more people needing our shelter than we have volunteers to serve in our shelter. So there's an opportunity for you to be the presence of Christ and meet a physical need. It's right there. Our partners in Rwanda, uh, the entire community up in Musanza, in the, in the high mountain country uh, of Rwanda, are, like the whole community buys into what the church is doing because the, church, the starting point, the front door of the gospel, is the church is meeting physical needs. There are, there are water initiatives. there are health initiatives. there's uh, uh, education related to transmission of AIDS. There's monogamy classes for married couples. And all these things are just very, very practical in terms of meeting physical. There's a savings club. People gather, and they put, literally put physical money in a physical box in Rwanda, and that physical box become, that money in that box becomes for those in the savings club. It becomes life insurance, health insurance. Uh, uh, loan, like that's a bank, and people use it, but people get, everyone gives into it, and so this very physical need is drawing people in, and it becomes the front door of the gospel. Any work that meets people's base needs is a, is a good work. Why? Jesus said so. Mark chapter 10, verse 40, 42. If you give a cup of cold water, what? In Jesus' name? Then Jesus, here's Jesus you're doing my work. And so all of us in the room, uh, one of the best things we can do if we want to be the presence of Christ in our world is find people's needs, physical needs, and meet them, right? Luke 10, 19, heal the sick and say, when you heal the sick, the kingdom of God is among you. So do good things, do them in Jesus' name. And Jesus had a mission statement, Luke chapter 4, Verse 18 and 19, Jesus said, here's why I've come. And he quotes Isaiah. He says, I've got to set the captive free to open the eyes of the blind, to proclaim the favor of the Lord, to forgive sins. And so I've come, and my presence in the world will be manifest in the display of meeting people exactly at their point of need. Are you hungry? Here's some food. Are you lonely? Here's companionship. Are you about to be executed? Here's forgiveness and intervention on your behalf. I mean, Jesus meets people exactly at their point of need, and so should we right? It's a good thing to do. You've all heard, uh, well, maybe you all haven't heard. How many of you have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a triangle? Most of you have. It's a pretty educated congregation, so you know about the the triangle. And at the bottom of the triangle is a very basic needs, right? And basic needs are things like this. I'm hungry. And we all know this. When you're hungry, what do you think about? I mean, the hunger you get, the more you think only about Food, right, and so somebody 's hungry, then it 's not appropriate to meet a need up here when the need is first down here. Does this make sense? so you meet hungry people? people are sick, they need health care, people are lonely, they need companionship and then it goes, I mean it goes up from the basic needs I need food and then uh, clothing and then I you know shelter. And I need work, but then if you have work, now your needs get a little nuanced. Oh, I need meaningful work, right? I hate my job. I'm putting things in boxes all day or whatever it is, and now I need meaningful work, and now I have meaningful work, And I'm, but I'm lonely. I need companionship. Now I have companionship, but now I want meaningful companionship, and it keeps going up and up and up and up and up. That's And so what you find with Jesus is Jesus having this knack for meeting people right where they have a need. That's where, that's where the gospel begins. And we should not apologize for being about pe- meeting people's needs because this is what Jesus does, and since we're the presence of Christ in the world is our calling. So we start there. We start there. But it must never stop there, and that's what becomes significant in this story is many people stop there, and they view the Christian life as simply a matter of meeting one another's physical needs. It is, ultimately, it is not that. That's a front door to something much more profound that we need to see. So we, when we move on... There's this great crowd now following Jesus. Um, and so we read the story. Uh, a large crowd follows him, verse 2, because they saw the signs he was performing. So they, they go following across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Jesus goes up on a mountain. He sits there. And then uh, as things unfold, uh, this, this crowd is here. So Jesus says to one of his disciples, Well, we have to feed these people. They're very hungry. They're not going to make it back across. The lake without eating, so who, how are we going to feed them, right? And if you know the story in John six, it's not our main point this morning. Uh, there's a guy, there's a little boy he has five loaves, two fishes, and he gives these to Jesus. Jesus prays over them, and then he starts breaking the bread, and everyone is fed with five loaves. So he multiplies, he, he multiplies the bread. So so that's great, and then here's what happens. Like, apparently everyone knew that Jesus had multiplied this food. And once they knew that, look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign, they said, this guy is a prophet. So then, verse 15, this is where the plot thickens. Act 2, Jesus clarifies his intentions. So Jesus, perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. So this is, okay, this is really interesting because uh, the Jews here are so excited. Oh, look at look what this guy did. He just performed a massive economic miracle. I mean, does that make sense? Like if you can take, you know, five loaves and feed thousands with it, think what that would mean for productivity, GDP, you know, reducing the national debt, all that good, you know, like if this guy were king, if he did do that, then, you know, Problem solved. So we went, so it said they came to take him by force and make him king. Now, if you're Jesus, wouldn't you be like this? Well, that'd be not. I'd I'd love to be king because if I could be king, then I could really fix things. Because, you know, when you're on the outside, you don't have that much power, you can't do anything. And so, so you know, they're going to take Jesus by force, make him king. And what it says here is that he withdrew and went, basically went into hiding. He goes, I want to mount. All by himself, not even his disciples go with him. And so, though they're ready to make him king, this king, in their mind, the king will rise up, restore identity, restore our prosperity. <clears throat> we'll be up here. Rome will be down there. We'll be free. They'll be enslaved. We'll have plenty. They'll want. We want Jesus, our king, king of Israel, right? So that's what they wanted. Jesus, knowing that, slips away somehow. And the question is this. Well, why would he slip away? And here's the answer. Fast forward the tape. End of Jesus' life, he's, in, he's on trial with Pilate. Pilate says, are you a king? What does Jesus say? Remember? Oh, yeah, I'm a king, but then what does he say? But my kingdom is, does anyone know the rest? Not of this world. I'm a king, but not in the way that you think of kings, right? So, uh, my kingdom is not of this world, and I'm just going to say this because it's so very important we hear it all together this morning as Bethany Community Church. Jesus is not a king intending to sanction any kingdom of this world. Jesus is beyond any kingdom of this world. And if he's beyond any kingdom, he's also beyond any political party. Jesus is not a Democrat. Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not green. Jesus is not communist. Jesus is not independent. And so let's all calm down. Does this make sense? (laughs) So at the end of the world... And neither has the Messiah arrived for those of you who think you want. So no gloating and no pity parties, all right? Because we are, this is not our kingdom. Jesus is saying that. And it's, it's more more than now than ever, in my opinion, because we are shooting each other over kingdoms of this world when Jesus says, no, you have a different kingdom, a different king. Let's move there. It's very, very important. Someone should say like amen or something right there. Yeah, right. Let's move into this kingdom that is not of this world. So that's why Jesus wouldn't be the king. He wouldn't allow it, right? Later in the evening, the disciples, they go back across the sea, Sea of Galilee. Jesus been up on the mountain. He comes back. When the disciples left, the crowd left. So now Jesus on the shore. He's all alone. And he walks across the water to get to the boat where the disciples are. Which is a cool miracle, but not the point this morning. So we'll have to skip it. It's kind of it's great that he does that. Well, I'll just say it. He walks across the water, gets in the boat. And, then, and so when he, when he arrives on the other side, skip ahead to verse 25. Uh, the crowd is on the other side. The disciples on the other side. And then the crowd sees that Jesus is on the other side. And they know this. There was one boat. The disciples were in the boat. Jesus was not in the boat. And, the, you know, the boat is there. The disciples are there. Jesus is there. And then the crowd is like this, Jesus, how'd you get here, right? So they're asking a question, and this is a very interesting little passage of Scripture, because as is often the case, Jesus doesn't answer the question. Instead, his response leads to an entirely different line of thinking, which we'll get to in a moment, but I just want to say for a moment, I'm just going to name this for us, Jesus often in the Bible, he doesn't answer the question that is asked of him. Do you know that when you're reading the Bible? It's, I've, I've taken a laughing at of it because it's so, so common in Scripture. You ask Jesus a question, and, and then what does Jesus do? He either changes the subject, as he does in this case, or he answers a question with a question, both of which, if you're an engineer or an accountant, are very annoying, right? <laughs> because what you want, this is an American word, we want closure. We want closure just parenthetically here, before we get back to the text, I'm going to tell you why Jesus does this. We have to understand the gospel is not written for Americans. Are you with me here? It's malleable enough that we can get it, but it's not written for any particular culture. The gospel is malleable enough to fit all cultures, and it may come as a surprise to some of you. There are cultures in which this is very common to answer a question with a question. And why does that happen? It's so that we have to think. Rather than being spoon-fed answers, we have to think. And so Jesus is teaching us, when he answers a question with a question, he's teaching us to think and ponder, right? You come in here, and we're Western, you know, our roots trace back to Greece and Rome and all that stuff. So when you come in here, I'm like, there are three acts. One, two, three answers. You know, people love little blanks to fill in. That's the Western way. Because then we think, okay, if I fill in the blanks, I'm holier somehow. I learned this stuff, and now I go home looking more like Jesus, not necessarily, but uh, there are other parts of the world where that doesn't work at all at all, <laughs> because people think not linearly, but circularly, right? And so if you're in a circular culture, then people just tell a story, and then they loop back around to a theme again and again and again and again. And I have a friend who he teaches in India a lot, and he teaches in Asia a lot, and uh, he lives in Canada. And when my friends go to listen to him in Canada, I always say, hey, don't try and take notes. Because people who listen to me, they're like, you know, they're taking notes. I say, don't take notes with this guy. Just listen and let it sink in. Very hard for Western minds, right? So here's Jesus, and, and they're like, they, I mean, they ask a question. How'd you get here? And here's Jesus. Let me tell you why you're seeking me. Like he doesn't answer at all. You know why you're here? You're here because I performed an economic miracle and you guys want to make me king. I know that. And then he changes the subject so that in verse 27, this is what Jesus says, don't work for food which perishes, work for food which endures to eternal life. So this is Jesus' reminder to them and us that while we are anxiously hungering for material security, Jesus is saying to us, don't even worry about it. Don't read it. Don't work for food which perishes. Oh, yeah, but, you know, look, we got a new administration now, and are we going to privatize Social Security? If so, will I still be able to retire at 65, or is it going to be 69 now? Are they going to raise the age? What about my 401K and the interest rates are going to go up, and then what do I do with that? Should I invest here or there? And we like, like, we worry about all this stuff, and here's Jesus. Jesus saying, look, you're asking the wrong questions. This is not to be your obsession. Yes, make your plans. I get it. However, don't worry about it. Instead, what does he say? It's, it's, I mean, it's like a, a strong exhortation. Work, he says, work for the food which endures to eternal life. Wow. In other words, like your focus, your, Jesus is inviting us to focus on something entirely other than my material well-being and my upward mobility and all the things that occupy so much of my time. Jesus says, hey, look, I multiplied the loaves, What are you worried about? And then over and over again, we take the gospel and we move it all the way down to a material base. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like we worry about material things and we think that Jesus is just here to meet our material needs and that Jesus is worried about material things too. In In a separate account similar to this, Jesus is in the boat, he's just performed this multiplying miracle with bread. He's in the boat with the disciples. He's just had an encounter with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Do you know the story? And then Jesus, so Jesus gets in the boat, and he says, hey, uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. To me, one of the funniest stories in the gospel, because the disciples, when they hear that, this is what they do. It's just they look at each other, and they're thinking to themselves, and I think they say it a little bit. Oh, I see. Jesus is saying, beware the leaven. Do you know why he's saying that? Because we forgot to bring bread in the boat. That's what, that's what they said. And this is Jesus' kind of passive-aggressive way of saying, you guys didn't bring any bread, and now we're going to be hungry before we get to the other side, and I'm going to have a blood sugar incident here in the boat. It's going to be your fault, you dumb disciples, why don't you bring bread? J- Jesus knows they're thinking that, and this is what he says. This is very important for us. There's Jesus. Why is your heart getting hard? And then he recounts, remember, two loaves, 5,000 people, whatever's the number. I don't know the numbers. Five loaves, 2,000, whatever. But here, what's the point? Don't look, you guys saw it. When you had a need, I met it. When you were hungry, I filled you. Why are you worried? Why? I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about false teaching that will divert you from the kingdom of God. That's what you should worry about. And so, Jesus is trying to get that message across here. And what he says, is he says, uh, work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man gives you. And this becomes, as we'll see in a moment, this becomes the problem, gives you. In other words, you can't earn this bread. All you do is receive it. And as, as we'll see, ultimately, that's a sticking point for us. In our fallen nature, grace is too simple We have a hard time simply, simply receiving. Does this make sense? Look, work work for the bread that the Son of Man what? Has for sale? No. The bread that the Son of Man gives you. Here's the problem. We live in a a non-grace culture, performance-based culture, and in our own pride of heart, we don't want to admit our own brokenness that all we can do is receive. We just, don't want to, we just don't want to do it. So this, this creates a huge challenge. And you see it at, in, the, in the Christmas season, we see it. And one of the ways it presents itself as a problem is when an acquaintance of yours, who you hadn't anticipated receiving a gift from, gives you a gift. Because when that happens, what happens to you? Well, it goes on immediately in your mind. Oh, brother. Now they give them a gift, right? They gave me a gift. So then this is what you do. You say, oh, thank you. You know, your gift is at home which is code for, I don't have a gift for you. But I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to buy something, and bring it back later and say, you know, here, oh, yeah, here's your gift. And, you know, oh, you gave me, a, you know, a $5 Starbucks card. Here's my $10 Starbucks card just to show that I'm more generous than you. And, and this is what we do. And Jesus is saying, look, there's one bread. It's this, etern- we'll, we'll unpack this. it's this eternal bread. And you can't work for it. You just have to receive it, Right. So that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to give you this bread. And then they say, well, what should we do to get this bread that we may work the works of God? What should we do? And then here's Jesus. This is what he says, verse 29. This is your work. Okay, you want to work? Here's the one thing. This is your work. Believe in Christ. Believe. That's the one work. Okay, now, and this is the story. It kind of gets funny. Believe in Christ. So they say, well, then we're going to need a miracle from you so that we might believe really? You need a miracle? Like 5,000 people eating with two loaves is not a miracle? Like, what do you want? I walked on water. You know, I've healed. Like, you're following me because I've been casting demons out of people and opening blind eyes. And now you want a miracle? You don't want a miracle. This, like, this is denial, right? This is a diversionary tactic on the part of these ostensibly disciples, followers. Show us a miracle and we'll believe Jesus is like this. I've shown you everything I'm going to show you. You, now it's time to believe. So, so Jesus kind of raises the ante here. They don't want to simply believe. And, and so the big question here, you know, why, don't they, why, why do they not want to believe? And Jesus talks about the manna that was received in the, in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And he says, oh yeah, but there's a better bread. Verse 33 of uh, John 6, he says, the, the, this bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and, uh, here's it here's again, gives life to the world. It's a gift. Um, There's a bread, it's here, and this bread will give life to the world. And then Jesus says, verse 85, I am that bread. I'm the bread. Right? Now, uh, let's just pause here and understand why bread was so significant in that culture. Why is bread significant? Here's why. Uh, Three things about bread, and if you're paleo, this morning, just put this on hold and forget about it for a minute. Instead of talking about the evils of bread, like we do at a CrossFit meeting or something. No, no, this is different. Okay? Three things about bread in this, in this culture. And it's true to this day. Bread satisfies, right? Everyone in the room knows it. Even if you, you, you know, I know there's many of you who are like, oh, I don't need bread. I know in your secret hearts what you do, right? <laughs> bread, why? Because bread satisfies, my wife has a thing. She has a wheat thing, whatever, a glu- and we have gluten-free, so she doesn't eat much bread at all, but we live in two places. I'm down here half the time, and I'm up in the mountains the other half of the time, and when I'm down here, I mean, don't tell her, she's not watching, but like bread down here, I'm bread. I'm all about bread. Go to yeah, sourdough and French toast, and, you know. Why? Because whatever I preach, I love bread. Bread satisfies. Second, in the culture, bread strengthens. Third, bread comforts. And if bread comforted then, it still comforts to this day, bread comforts. True? After, so, my daughter, my youngest daughter, runs a bakery down by the Space Needle. And she said, that was the funniest thing. Every, always on Fridays, people come in and they load up on lots of comfort breads for the weekend you know, cinnamon rolls, cinnamon bread, and all this stuff. And people spend their weekends eating comfort food, right, in front of TV, watching football, whatever we do. So so they make a huge batch on the weekends. She said that the day after the election, double any Friday that we've had all year. Like, people came in on that Wednesday morning, everybody wanted, I'd like 8,000 cinnamon rolls, please. (laughs) Why? Because I voted for Hillary Clinton, and I need to comfort myself, or whatever it is, right? And so, so, like, the, the bakery had this influx of people wanting bread. Why? Bread comforts, bread strengthens, bread satisfies. And that's what they heard when Jesus said, I'm bread. <laughs> I'm your comfort. I'm your strength. I'm your satisfaction. The dialogue continues, and it gets like pretty intense here in verse 47. So listen with me. Truly, truly, says Jesus, intensifying his declaration, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now, the word here, life, is not bios, from which we get biology, but it's a word zoe. So Jesus here, when he's saying, here's why you need to eat this bread, he says, you have no life in yourselves. And like, if you don't understand the distinction between zoe and bios, you're like, what do you mean I have no life? I'm in here. My heart's beating. I'm I'm speaking, you're listening, we're taking notes, we're singing, you know, we're eating, we're alive, we have life. No, you have bias, which is a part of life, you don't have Zoe. What's Zoe? Glad you asked. Zoe is this like this this spiritual life that, that only Christ can give us because it's life that comes out from the dead and only He died and rose from the dead. So He gives us a life that we don't have. In order that we could live the life for which we're created. Does that make sense? So when he says, I'm the bread of life, he's the bread of Zoe. <laughs> I'm the bread that will enable you to be a person of contentment, peace, love, joy, hope, patience, kindness, generosity, long suffering. I will enable you to overcome your addictions. I will move you into the streets so that you're crossing social divides. You'll become a voice of reconciliation to the world. I am life like your heart is beating, but you're not alive until you're in God's story. So you have to eat that bread to know that life. That's what Jesus is saying, right? So he gets very pointed in verse 51 where he says, I'm the living bread and and the life I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then Jesus says, Look at verse 53, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life, no zoe. Ah, very interesting. Jesus calling here for radical identification with him. Now, okay, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no life. We're, in a minute, we're going to do this thing over here. We call it communion, right? Lord's table. And understand, when we do this thing, I'm not saying to you that that, that cracker is the literal body of Jesus. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that that grape juice is the literal blood of Christ. I'm not saying that. We don't teach that here. What we are saying is that these are symbols of your radical entire identification with Christ. And that makes it actually more powerful than if it's the literal body. Because if it's a literal body, you're like this, okay, cracker, done. Juice, done. Now I have Jesus. No, (laughs) no. Listen, Jesus comes when your heart is so open to receiving all that he is that you recognize by partaking of Christ, he will change you. (laughs) Not just in ways you want to be changed, hear me, but in ways you don't want to be changed. And this is why everyone left. Because when Jesus says, look, unless you eat of me, they got it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've heard the saying, you are what you eat, (laughs) right? Right? You partake of Christ, and you will become like Christ. Listen, that's great because I'm broke, and I need Jesus' financial guidance. Yes, and he will do that for you, and he will change your sexuality, and he will cause you. Uh, he'll, he'll lead you on a path of forgiving your enemies. I should say he'll change your sexual ethic, not your sexuality. <laughs> he'll... he'll He'll lead you down a path of, of, of loving your enemies and, and crossing social divides. And you're like this, well, I'm not so interested in that stuff. Look, I just need a job from Jesus. Oh, no, no. Look, when you, ta- when you partake, you partake of all that he is. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, 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 and so people, were, we want a selective Jesus. My marriage is broken. Jesus is my therapist. I, I, I'm, I'm out of a job. Jesus is my employment counselor. I, I'm an addict. Jesus Jesus, is my counselor. I have a disease. Jesus is my doctor. I'm lonely, she's my, my friend. Yeah, no, listen, if you're going to receive Christ, you're going to receive all that he is, and who does that? I'll tell you who. People who are really, really hungry, that's who. Not people who want to co-opt Jesus for some little slice of their life, but people whose brokenness is total enough that they know that they need something that they don't have, and they're willing to shoot the moon with Christ. That's, what, that's the invitation. That's the gospel right there. I can't live the life for which I'm created, and I know it, (laughs) so I want Christ. I mean, in my own life, in my own story, there have been three specific times when this was so powerfully real for me, and I met Christ in powerful new ways. 1975-76, I was in a deep depression. My dad had died. I was lonely. I was sick. I was confused. I didn't know what to do with my life or my future. I was studying architecture. And I was, I'll tell you, I was so empty, I was ripe for Christ. Do you understand? Like, I was so empty, I was ripe. And so when the offer came from a pulpit like this one to make knowing Christ the main goal of my life, I (laughs) bit because I didn't have anything. And I remember, I'm out in the snow, and I'm on my knees, and I'm crying, and I say, Jesus, I don't have a clue what to do with, I don't even know who I am. That's where Christ meets us. In 1990, you know, we left Friday Harbor. We moved to the mountains. And people would say, well, how are you going to live up there? And we said, well, we don't know. It's just God is calling us up there. And so, you know, we're doing, I'm refereeing hundreds of basketball games and writing grants for Skagit County and doing different things. And we were praying because literally daily bread, we needed Christ, right? And in that, that's when God met me in a powerful way, not just to meet financial needs, but to transform my whole heart. And another great season was 1996, my first year at Bethany Community Church, when this church grew from 300 to 200 in the short span of one year. (laughs) And and I said, what am I doing here? Why have I come here? Why did I leave the mountains I love to come to the city that I don't even know that I like uh, with my kids and raise them in the midst of all this? God, what are you doing? I'm broken. Listen, when you're broken, you're ready (laughs) for this table. And here's the problem. Jesus... Like the sermon intensifies, so we get to the departure. And this is what Jesus said. He said, it is the Spirit who gives life. Your flesh profits nothing. Don't work for me. That's Jesus. Don't work for me. Rather, come to me with an existential awareness of your own brokenness. Yeah, well, Richard, like what are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. Maybe there's a relationship that needs fixing, and you can't forgive. You know you should, but you can't. That's brokenness. Maybe there's an addiction that you know you should be freed from, and you've tried and failed, tried and failed. That's brokenness. Maybe there's a desperate loneliness. Maybe there's a boredom. Maybe there's a complacency over your faith. I don't know what it is, but if we lean into our hunger, that's when we take all that Christ is. And now it's not a cracker anymore and juice. Now it's Christ. Do you see? When, I practice, when I'm broken, I need Christ. But when Jesus says, look, and I'm paraphrasing, but when Jesus says, lean into your hunger, here's what people said, no. no, Thanks, Jesus, but no. I'd rather live with self-sufficiency because then I don't have to appropriate all that you are. I can just take the pieces I want. Or, thanks, Jesus, but it's, you know, it's much easier to eat spiritual junk food and so I'll busy my life with religious activities, but never really face my own brokenness. I'll never weep because I'm, because I'm that empty. No, you know, Jesus, Christians don't do that. Like, we're on top of the world. No, we aren't. We're filled because we were first broken. And if, we're, if we've never been broken, I wonder if we've ever been filled. So from that day on, it says, many no longer walked with Jesus. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't panic. He's not like, oh, man, I'm losing market share. I better, you know, change my messaging to recapture. There's none of that. Like, people are leaving, and Jesus knows that what he said is just truth. And so rather than changing it, he turns to the few that are remaining, like his most loyal disciples, and he says, what about you guys? Do you guys want to leave also? And I love Peter's answer because it's not a, like a Sunday school answer. If Jesus said to me, hey, Richard, you want to leave? I'd say, oh, no, Jesus. Come on, you're Jesus. I don't want to leave. You're amazing. That's not Peter's answer. <laughs> Do you want to leave? Here's Peter. Where else will we go? That's brokenness. And I'll just, I'll just say to you, that's why I'm standing here. Because Buddhism doesn't cut it for me. I wish it did sometimes. It'd be easier. Pure materialism doesn't cut it for me. It's empty. Self-help doesn't cut it for me. Upward mobility doesn't cut it for me. So when Jesus says, hey, I want to give you all that I am, but Richard, you know that that will mean radical transformation, even of areas in your life that you don't want transformed. Do you want to leave? Here's my answer. Jesus, yeah, I would actually like to leave, but there's nowhere else to go. it's a a good answer. It's a fair answer at this table. In fact, Jesus would say it's a better answer than, oh, it's Sunday. It's, oh, that's right. It's the first Sunday of December. I'll just remember that Jesus died for me and call it a day. Oh, no, listen, come and eat this morning, but only because you faced your hunger. So before the elements come to you, here's the, the, the prayer. What are you hungry for? You're hungry for companionship because you're desperately lonely but you've busied yourself so as to avoid your own loneliness? Name that loneliness and come to Christ. You're addicted and nobody knows? Name that addiction and come to Christ. You, are you confused about the future? Are you afraid of the future? Name your confusion. Name your fear. Come to Christ. Out of our hunger, we eat. And then it's real. How do I know Jesus? Because I'm hungry. Father, meet us now at the table. Speak to each of our hearts of our own hunger, that we might receive not a portion of you, but all that you are. And we'll thank you for the fruit of it. In the name of Christ, who is our hope we pray.